Hello and welcome to the Tucson Climate Chats podcast back at last in 2021. As always, I am your host, Nick Spinelli, bringing our 16th episode to you from occupied Tohono O'odham homelands in the Ward 3 neighborhood of Campbell Grant. Our guest today is Dennis Caldwell, local graphic designer and independent contractor who specializes in the conservation of threatened and endangered species. Dennis, you're here to share some good news, and I think we could all use that right about now. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Yeah, glad to have you here. Uh, for listeners' information, Dennis, you and I spoke a few months ago, originally when I interviewed you for the larger Tucson Climate Project. It's a pleasure to have you back. So let's dive in. You focus on the conservation of aquatic species in the Sonoran Desert. And to those that don't know better, that might sound confusing, even contradictory. What does that mean? Tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah, especially for people from uh, out of town that might be watching. Um, us desert rats uh, call things that look like dry washes rivers. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes yep. they look like just uh, they're all sand, you know, but uh, most of the year. But there are times when it rains and it rains hard and those uh, dry washes are flowing bank to bank and they literally look more like a river. But the, uh, the kind of aquatic habitat that I deal with is more the perennial type. That means it's wet all year round. There are places in most of our uh, valley bottom drainages where um, short reaches of these rivers um, do flow continually um, all year round. It might just be a trickle but as long as there's some water there, there's usually some fish and frogs that are surviving through the drought in those tiny little stretches of stream. And then other parts of the year, there's more water there and they've got uh, more room to spread out and move around. And they're all you know, highly adapted over a million years to dealing with these flood and drought cycles right. uh, that most species can't handle. Right. That level of resiliency, humans could learn a thing or two. So, you know, you mentioned fish, frogs, some other things, you know, what are some, and you and I talked a little bit about this in our first conversation, but what are some, what are some specific examples um, that come to mind? Many of them have adorable names. Um, yeah. Which ones uh, have you worked with? Um, well, I do a lot of work with uh, desert pupfish and, mm. Uh, the Rio Sonoya um, pupfish, which is the same as the Keto Vaquito pupfish that's been in the news a lot lately because of what's been going on out at Oregon Pipe National Monument where the uh, pupfish uh, have their last tiny bit of habitat left on earth. Um, that's probably one of the more charismatic species that I work with because mm. the males are just cobalt blue. Uh, it's a small fish about one inch long, uh, but they're chunky little guys, <laughs> and girls, and uh, they're really active and fun to watch and just beautiful little fish. Uh, but I also deal a lot with things like uh, leopard frogs, which are just small green spotted aquatic frogs that have to have water to reproduce in, uh, different from what we call, uh, you know, what we more often see, the toads, um, which come out during the rainy season and then burrow into the ground to get through the rest of the heat of the year. Um, the aquatic frogs, true frogs, like leopard frogs, need to have permanent water and they're living in and around that water uh, all year round and uh, through every stage of their life. Um, I also deal with um, our native turtles here, which is mm. a couple species of mud turtle that um, um, are fairly common. The, the Sonoran mud turtle is fairly common throughout a lot of our streams um, and mountain creeks and things, um, all the way down to our lower valley bottom areas like the... Um, um, recharge reaches of the Santa Cruz River that have been um, restored and becoming uh, revegetated and re-wetted. Um, re-wetted, I like that. 
through recharge and a lot of that's treated water that's being put back into a river that we dried up 100 years ago. Um, and there are things like Sonoran mud turtles that are coming back in there and starting to reclaim new habitat uh, and persisting. There's also a species of mud turtle um, that is isolated at some of the same small springs that the pupfish are. Um, out at Quito Baquito Spring, for instance, at Oregon Pike, there's a mud turtle that is endemic to that one little spring and mm. um, a small reach of the Rio Sonoida in Mexico that is um, just across the border from that spring. So their last habitat is there and at a sewage treatment plant in the town of Sonoida, right at the border crossing there. Um, we've done some work to try and save that species from going extinct as well as these waters dry up. And then of course, all of these species have predators associated with them. Um, uh, the Mexican garter snake is a predator that is also at risk uh, because it feeds on these animals that are all endangered and uh, losing habitat and without anything to eat, it can't survive either. Right. And then there are larger animals that then uh, feed on them as well, more charismatic species like uh, the borderland jaguars and um, quotamundis, raccoons, great blue herons. All of these things, you know, rely upon these lower organisms as food. And uh, we put a lot of work into trying to repair the lower parts of the uh, food chain, if you will, um, in order to help save a whole suite of species and keep things from falling like a house of cards. Right. These are my words, not yours, but like for all the people that roll their eyes and they're like, there's nothing particularly sexy about a one inch long fish that lives in one pond and one spring in the middle of nowhere everything is connected. I think you just summarized that really beautifully. Um, before we move on, and it's totally okay if you don't know the answer to this, I want to ask you like a dork out, nerd out, like uh, amphibian physiology question. You know, you mentioned that some of these aquatic frogs, they need water year round. In some of my graduate research, uh, I had the pleasure of dorking out and learning about uh, freeze adaptations in like colder climates, right? And like how insects and amphibians respond when temperatures are, oh, I don't know, 30 or 40 below zero in like Wyoming, for example. Well, here it sounds like the opposite. We had a hundred days over a hundred degrees this summer. Do you have any idea how they're adapted to handle that kind of heat when they don't burrow or go dormant? I know they're in the water, but what, what does that look like? That sounds extraordinary. Yeah, it is, you know, especially um, from an amphibian standpoint, you know, their skin is porous, so they can lose moisture pretty easily um, if they're left high and dry. Um, they're, these are pretty complex habitats, and there's usually, um, um, especially like the frogs and turtles, they're living in riparian areas with large trees and undercut banks, you know, burrows on the sides of the stream where they can pretty much, uh, pretty easily, you know, retreat into um, a cool place. Um, even if uh, some of these areas dry up, uh, turtles and frogs will kind of burrow into the mud, into the banks, and hopefully the rains will come before that mud desiccates <laughs> right. uh, and dries up with them entombed in it. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> which often happens. And, what a way uh, to go. I saw way too much of that this year. This was just wow. uh, the worst summer I've ever seen. Um, but most of these places did get rain in time and then these species can spread out and they do their thing. But when you're talking pupfish, uh, they have special adaptations, which I'm not enough of a fish biologist to really go into, but um, they survive in really hot conditions. There's um, some living in the little stream in uh, Death Valley, which uh, gets 
hot to the touch uh, and the fish are happily swimming around. <laughs> As you're dying of heat stroke on the bank, looking at them. If you can imagine the hottest desert in North America, the Gran Deserto, you know, over by Pinacate and uh, Yuma area, um, just across the border down in the Colorado River Delta, hmm. there are these shallow mud flat lagoons that are spring fed um, that um, are no more than an inch or two deep in this dark, black, muddy silt um, with pupfish swimming around in them, baking wow. in, you know, 113 to 120 degree sun it's you know they're specially adapted and, and that's one of the things you know some people also are you know always looking for worth in what you know species is and you know why do we care about this little brown fish in this case a cute little blue fish <laughs> but uh you know scientifically it, it's just amazing to be able to um have animals like this that are adapted to such incredibly harsh conditions. You know, what is it about their physiology that allows them to do this? What can we learn from them? Uh, you know, what is their cell behavior? You know, there's just so many things medically that could help humans if that's all that you care about um, that could be lost if, if these fish are lost. So, you know, there's, there's always multiple reasons. Uh, for me, the reason primarily is that um, it's just our job to not let these things go extinct. Uh, they're beautiful in their own right, and they shouldn't need any other justification to keep them alive or to keep them from going extinct. Uh, it's our obligation as stewards of this earth to be able to uh, do a good job of maintaining them. So uh, I try to put more emphasis on that than the scientific reasoning behind uh, there could be medical discoveries coming from this species and um, the more human centric avenue that some people pursue. Right. I think, uh, no, really well said because yes, that's a great bonus. And like you just said, if they've evolved these absolutely incredible adaptations to survive in these environments, you know, they've survived all these other challenges, right? <laughs> like, and then I don't know, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but we come along and we just start dumping sewage into their pond or we drain all the water or whatever. It's like, that's not something that I think they should be expected to adapt to yeah. <laughs> or evolve from. Oh, well said. And that's, and that is, you know, back to our original um, conversation about water in the desert um, and the regional issues here, especially for people who are not from this area who might be watching. Um, desert is our water in the in the desert is already scarce enough, and what has happened over the last hundred years is through pumping groundwater uh, for agricultural uses and other human uses, mining, um, uh, urban development, um, all of these things have um, contributed to depleting water levels in our aquifers to the point where uh, they no longer support flowing water in our streams. The water table has gone down so far that that water never touches the surface anymore. In some places, you know, it's that water table has gone down maybe 300 feet wow. below this, what it historically was. Right. So um, these are mostly human caused things that um, have created um, a lack of water that is more uh, serious than it ever was hundred years ago. And with the few wet places that are left, a lot of those have been used for other human reasons like um, um, fishing, recreation, um, our lakes that we, where we've dammed up streams to create lakes. They've been stocked with sport fish from other parts of the country that aren't native here. Uh, that makes that habit no longer available to our native species. Um, our streams um, uh, have been introduced with non-native species, um, often for human recreation, sport, uh, bullfrogs, crayfish, 
uh, sport fish like Whoa, uh, crayfish, huh? largemouth bass, and uh, things like that. Those Large are all bass. Food. All these names you're saying, like these are things I'd expect to see in well, not crayfish, but the bass. Lake Erie. I grew up in Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. It's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Yeah, we've brought all of those East Coast species here with us um, as we settled the West because huh. those are the things that we enjoyed back home and now we want to have them here. Mm-hmm. And you know that's fine in some areas, but um, where water is connected, those species then also are connected and none of that connectivity is no longer available to the native fauna that used to inhabit those regions. So now we're dealing with just, you know, isolated little pockets of water that don't have invasive species in there um, and have not been dried up. And now we're looking at climate change drying these things up and um, we have to blame humans for that as well. Uh, It seems less of a direct connection when things are just really dry and hot out there uh, weather-wise and they're drying up these streams but uh, there's still a human connection and that's what makes um, the work of the conservationists that are trying to work with these species so challenging you know there's very little we can do about so much of this right and it all just sounds so I'm just thinking out loud. It all sounds so decentralized too, in the sense that there isn't just one place, one pond, one river, one location where you're like, all right, we got to hit here and hit hard and we're going to fix this. It's all over the place. And just the, uh, this was something that I was struck by in our first conversation, just the magnitude of the problem. And even just the fact that, you know, that contradiction to hold lightly, and this is just my opinion, but like, of humans have caused the problem. And yet we're also, it's our loss in the sense that not only are we losing this ecological resource, if you want to call it that, but like, you know, whether these are green spaces and oases that are disappearing, these are cultural sites like Quito Bikito or whatever. Um, you know, not only are we driving a lot of these changes broadly, but then we're also the ones losing a lot as they disappear along with the species themselves. So I'm wondering, going back to our first conversation, you, you, you told me some absolutely wild stories about some of the projects that you've been involved with. And I don't want to like, you know, overly glorify that, but I was really impressed with how creative some of the solutions that you've been involved with were to kind of design habitat, move species around, like really just work miracles with something that I think most people wouldn't even bother with. Um, What's a good place to start there? You know, what's a project that you've worked on or a species that you helped to conserve habitat for that you think would be a good example uh, to share? Um, probably the best example is some of the um, frog and fish work that I've done out at Las Cienegas National Conservation Area, uh, where I worked with a team of other biologists um, we targeted trying to recover the Chiricahua leopard frog in that watershed. And we tackled this as an entire watershed. It's a whole valley. Watershed is basically a large area where all of the surrounding water drains one direction into one creek. Um, You go to the top of a watershed, it's usually the top of a mountain or a flat plain. Eventually, you dump water on the ground, you'll see that it's running the other direction instead of back towards your watershed. So it's kind of a big basin, a large basin on on a large landscape where everything drains into that basin. And we targeted that area um, for trying to recover the Chiricahua leopard frog. We had a lot of challenges. We had to get rid of um, non-native species within the watershed. Uh, we targeted every place where we um, where we found non-native aquatic species, um, eradicated them to clear the way to be able to recover this uh, species of leopard frog, which is in serious decline and um, used to be in really good shape in that uh in that valley, in that watershed. And so once we were able to 
get the non-natives out of the picture. We also needed a way to head start the frogs, the, the leopard frogs in order to get them reestablished in that valley. And so for that, we converted a number of livestock tanks or cow ponds, because this is a big ranching area. It's all grasslands. Right. Um, it's uh, real sustainable with, um, for, for grazing cattle, because if it's done properly at low numbers, um, it works great out there because there's lots and lots of grass and it's a healthy ecosystem. So um, we've worked very closely with the rancher and other landowners to be able to um, have the freedom to do what was necessary to try and recover these species. And we converted a number of the livestock tanks into habitat by fencing out the cattle. Um, we installed solar pumps on the wells so we would have a constant flow of water going into these ponds. We then branch off from that pipe to some metal drinkers that the cattle can drink out of outside of the fence in pond. So they've got clean water to drink. Um, the ranchers got um, solar panels and a pump. And now he um, has committed to maintaining that forever after we walk away huh. and that continues to feed that habitat in that pond for the um, frogs and endangered fish species and everything else that's living in those ponds. And um, our main motivation for this was really just to give these frogs a head start so that they would have good stable habitat where they could reproduce and disperse throughout the valley and, uh, and spread all over the place. Um, that was our hope anyway. And that's pretty much exactly what had happened. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. The, the twist on all this is, is during the process of all this, um, there was a threat of the Rosemont mine, uh, which was mm. just um, off to the side of this valley you know, within this watershed. And it's a mine that's being proposed that would be a very large open pit mine and that would dewater the watershed significantly. In other words, it would draw water away from uh, the creek and the springs and everything where these, um, every place where the natural habitat for these aquatic species uh, is that we're relying on or that we're, we're trying to reintroduce them. And so <clears throat> with the threat of that looming, um, we went through a lot of, um, you know, thought exercises in, you know, what does the future look like for that valley? You know, the creek, even though it's well protected, there's still more and more houses popping up all the time in the neighboring community of Snoida and Elgin. It's now turning into wine country. They're putting in vineyards. They're pumping a lot of water from the aquifer for those vineyards. Um, it's, it's getting stressed just like every watershed. And we're seeing that express itself in the creek itself. Um, BLM uh, manages the conservation area and they've done a really good job of watching those water levels and have documented very well, you know, as, as those declines. And so it, it may well be mine or no mine that that creek starts to dry up anyway and all mm -hmm. of our hard work will have been for nothing. But what we do have, no matter what happens, is these artificial habitats. Right, the cow ponds. Cow ponds, which we thought was just gonna be a temporary staging tool. The infrastructure is in place. Um, we've proved for the last um, 10 years that it's very successful habitat. And um, now there's also been um, um, threatened and endangered fish that have been added to those ponds as well. Mm -hmm to recover those species or to give those species extra places to live. And it's all being maintained by solar powered wells that are pumping water, just like what we're encouraging people not to do. <laughs> this, is, this is pumping water for wildlife instead of for people. Imagine and that. It's, it's not much more than you would do for a swimming pool. Um, and it's just a few small habitats that are out there uh, being maintained on the across the landscape 
and we're just seeing a crazy number of different species utilizing these um, man-made wetlands that we've created. And it goes back to that whole food chain thing where we're seeing an entire ecosystem of predators and prey living at these places. And yes, those predators are eating endangered species, but um, that's the way it works in nature. And fortunately, these animals like uh, Gila top minnow, for instance, reproduce really fast. They they really do. And so do the frogs. Uh, There are literally thousands of, of our leopard frogs out there every mm. summer once the egg masses are hatching and the babies are everywhere. So, you know, it's these species that are lower on the food chain typically reproduce really quickly. And that's how they um, support their numbers. That's how, um, that's how it works in nature. And that supports a whole suite of predators. And it's just really cool to see that all unfold and to know that um, that national conservation area now has a tool to use no matter how dire things get in the natural habitat. Uh, we all like to dream, you know, that we can just do a hands-off conservation and just, you know, leave things alone and they'll be just fine. But in the state that things are today, they're just too broken. And if we walk away from this and just let nature do its thing, we're going to lose a lot. And uh, I know I, for one, am not willing to walk away from that quite yet. Right. It's actually a good question. I think I asked you this in our first interview. Um, How many years have you been doing this work in some form or another? Um, well, I started getting in some form or another, I guess I've been doing this all my life, uh, just volunteering or just doing things on my own. Uh, if you're going to go hiking, you may as well be hiking for a cause, you know, <laughs> avid outdoor enthusiast. And I like it. Uh, if I'm going to be outdoors. I'm going to be uh, looking for things that might or might not be there that maybe nobody knows they're there. You'll be scouting for cow ponds. <laughs> Scouting cow ponds, see where frogs are, where they're not, uh, where something bad might be, and uh, letting the um, proper authorities know that there's a problem here or something good happening here. You know, there's a species that we thought was extinct, and uh, I found them living on this little stretch of creek. What is that? Did that actually happen? Oh, this happens all the time. Um, There's, you know, there's a lot of wilderness here in Arizona and um, not a lot of uh, people with the trained eye to detect things that, um, uh, that need to be known about. Huachuca water umble is a tiny little um, aquatic plant that is so easy to overlook. And it grows in a lot of our streams, springs, and little creeks up in the mountains in certain parts of Southern Arizona. And um, it's, people are always finding it by accident here or there. It mm-hmm. tends to just disappear from one area and pop up in another area. And it's, it's a protected endangered species of plant. Um, and it's always fun, you know, if you're walking a stream or something to, to train your eye to look for that because you might stumble across some and then that's another dot on the map for mm. uh, the people who are trying to uh, manage those species and that habitat. So, yeah, all my life, I guess I've just been kind of trying to do that stuff and then volunteering for different projects that are maybe bigger than that. Um, where we're actually doing proactive conservation or uh, things along those lines. By trade, I'm a graphic designer, um, but by hobby, I like doing this kind of stuff. And eventually it's kind of come to the point where um, a good percentage of my paid work is now biological work, doing uh, conservation projects uh, where we can find funding available. Um, there's a lot you can do with just a little bit of money. Right. Especially if you know what to look for when you're wading through the stream. 
Especially um, if you're willing to work for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I'm very well paid as an AmeriCorps member. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so <laughs> I think the last I spoke with you was October. Um, I'm wondering now that the heat's died down a little bit, like, you know, what are, yeah, what are some of the, you know, not on the graphic design end, but some of the, the conservation, the biological things you've been working on? What are some of the projects that have been on your radar these last few months? Uh, well, I've been getting a little bit more involved with the um, efforts to try and save Keto Bikito Spring out at Organ Pipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of work going on around that. Um, I've been involved for quite some time with an effort to save the same species of fish and turtles from the Rio Snoida that is drying up. That's the river just across the border south of Oregon Pipe. Um, that used to be a pretty vibrant river system um, that starts out on the Tana Autumn Reservation, like around the Sells area in that watershed as described about watersheds earlier, that whole region, which we see get a lot of rain during our monsoons, uh, that rain all out there all drains into uh, a series of washes that creates a perennial river that runs from the reservation across the border south of Sells, um, and then Imagine it paralleling the border just on the Mexican side for many miles all the way towards uh, west towards the town of Lukeville, where you cross to go to Rocky Point, um, past uh, along the border wall uh, with uh, Oregon Pipe, and then it kind of terminates out into the sand dunes and disappears into the sand dunes of the Pinacate. Uh, during flood stage, it, blows through that all the way down into the estuary down at Puerto Penasco or Rocky Point. Um, but there's a couple little spots left there. Uh, what used to be flowing water year round, there's still a couple little spots left where water is there year round. And mm. for the last, uh, I'd say 15 years, a group of biologists and myself, um, um, have been concerned that we were going to lose the endemic fish and turtles in that stream because um, it is becoming less and less water. And this is what has happened to so many of our desert streams. This is what happened to the Santa Cruz River here in Tucson at the beginning of the 1900s. It used to be a vibrant river and eventually it was pumped dry from agriculture. And that's exactly what's happening in Mexico with the Rio Sonoida, only it's in our lifetime now. And we're trying to figure out what should we do about it? So we had just a little bit of funding and we pulled the rest of the money out of our own pockets. And we went to Mexico, worked with Mexican biologists to build a series of small ponds that we could maintain with water. and recirculating pump systems uh, to be able to salvage some fish out of that river before it dries up or in case it dries up and keep um, some of our eggs in different baskets so that if anything catastrophic happens to that river, they're not completely extinct. And uh, within two years, within two summers, it dried up enough to wipe out one of those species, wow. the taste that uh, is endemic to that river. And so we still have got some of them alive in just one pond down in Mexico. Uh, the pupfish that live in that river um, have managed to survive despite it looking like it had completely dried up somehow they survived in algae mats or some sort of damp little sand pockets until the rains came and uh, are still persisting. But we have them backed up in three or four ponds down there, um, trying to just keep them alive and healthy, not knowing what their future looks like uh, or where they'll ever have a habitat because the river will surely be gone forever. 
but who knows, that's what we thought about the Santa Cruz. And now we're putting um, treated wastewater back into the river, creating these flowing reaches with trees and plants and animals coming back. Uh, it would have been really nice if we could have saved a whole bunch of these animals from the Santa Cruz when it dried up and then we could be putting them back now. So maybe someday we'll be able to do that with Keto Bikito or the Rio Sonoida, um, as long as we can keep some alive. Uh, it gives us a resource to use to try and re rebuild that ecosystem somewhere further down the line. Right. I, uh, I'm gonna get this all wrong, but what you just said reminded me um of one of Edward Abbey's protégés. And he's uh, Doug Peacock, I think. He's worked with grizzly bears for a long time. And I believe it was Doug who once said that, you know, my job isn't to keep grizzly bears alive for the next 100 years. My job is to keep them alive for the next 20. I.e., like, if we can just fill that gap and he can do his bit for as long as he's here, then whoever comes after, they'll at least have the species to work with and they can do something. But if they're not here in 20 years, there's no way they'll be here in a hundred. Correct. Yeah. Well said. So those are some of the projects that you know are most pressing on my mind right now. Um, and, you know, we're kind of in that same situation out at Oregon pipe right now. Um, you know, it, it's a, talk to a lot of media about what's going on at Oregon Pipe. Um, they're getting a lot of it wrong. Um, there's a lot that's being done. I often get asked questions about um, how come nobody's doing anything about this? There's very little we can do under the current administration about the political situation that has caused um, the turmoil along the border wall. Uh, but we, have uh, the park service is very meticulous about managing their resource. Their resource is everything within that park. And Keto Paquito is um, a really special place. It's an oasis in the desert. It's a spring that pops out of the ground in this really, really hot, dry part of the desert. Um, it flows for a little ways and then it pools in a, in a man-made pond that was burned up um, long ago. I don't know what the dates that that was done, but we, and I think there's speculation that even the Hoakam were um, berming it and using it for agriculture there, you know, way before Europeans had any influence there. And so it is a place that's been used for agriculture uh, for a really, really long time. It's, it's, it's a very um, important place culturally, and it's a very important place biologically. The animals and plants that live there uh, are like an island in the middle of nowhere uh, because <laughs> it's the only water around. And the building of right. the wall uh, did not necessarily um, create the problem that we're seeing right now of it drying. It's been um, on a decline for quite a while now, probably more to do with climate change, but there could even be some hydrological stuff, some shifting of fissures in the groundwater, uh, you know, the way the groundwater moves through and expresses itself at that spring. Sometimes a mild earthquake can change things. Huh. Who knows what the deal is, but um, it is being actively studied and thoroughly studied and um, we've been having meetings after meetings and the park service has been you know, really serious about trying to figure out alternatives, what can be done to try and uh, save what little water is there um, and all of those species. So that's just always amazing to me, you know, how people are pretty quick to judge, you know, and jump to conclusions that um, things are not being done when there's actually a lot of really motivated, dedicated people behind the scenes that are just losing sleep at night, trying to stay on top of these problems. Right. As problems present themselves more and more. It gets pretty overwhelming. Right. 
whether it's the Otham women who I think are with Defend Otham Jewid who are out there, uh, to my knowledge, every day uh, protesting uh, certain political issues, or it's like you said, uh, all the work that's happening with these species, I think a lot of that goes unseen. And I was going to speculate on why, but I'll just ask you about that in a moment, because that was part of the conversation I wanted to have with you. Before I do, I just wanted to put in a plug for the National Park Service website. Uh, they had a blurb on there about how some artifacts found around Quito Bikito Spring, which to situate this for listeners, is in Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. As we've already said, that is about two and a half hours by car to the west of Tucson. It is still in Pima County. Um, some artifacts there date back 16,000 years. It's been continuously occupied ever since. That is absolutely mind-boggling. <laughs> it illustrates like what you said, you know, where there's water, there's life. Um, so something we talked about in our original interview for the Tucson Climate Project, and also something we kicked around as like a podcast idea was, you know, you've been involved with all of these success stories and like coming back from the brink. And so often those just never seem to be heard or they just get lost in, you know, all of the uh, understandably like bummer news swirling around that we read, you know, why is that in your experience and how can we change that? Yeah, I don't know. You know, originally I was hoping to kind of um, be able to shed some light on some of that, you know, by giving some, uh, some of these, people who have been kind of heroes behind the scenes, um, some recognition, but, you know, it, it's crazy. A lot of times uh, these people are going above and beyond their job and that makes it politically dangerous to even like give them the recognition they deserve. Um, um, there's a political climate right now that does not encourage that kind of behavior. Uh, there's a lot of people who just simply don't want the recognition. Hmm. But I think, you know, from an, more of an abstract lesson, you know, it's like I do a lot of work with a lot of different people and no one person is like, doing all of this. Uh, we're all working in concert. Tucson has been just a fabulous place to live that way. There are so many conservationists. There's so many people that are passionate about the wilderness and uh, protecting endangered species. And so, you know, it's just been really easy to network. It's been really easy to meet people. It's been so easy to just pick up the phone and call somebody, get information uh, and connect dots, keep people on top of what they need to, you know, we, we just all work together. And I think it's important to point that out. You know, there's just a lot of people out there that are doing this stuff, mostly unpaid. You know, this is, these are not people that are doing this for their job. There are a lot of people that are lucky enough to have a job where they are getting paid for it. Maybe they're working for the park service or, uh, Bureau of Land Man Management, um, where they're actually land managers, or maybe they're Arizona Game and Fish, they're working with the wildlife, um, that's their job. Um, but, you know, even them, they are all under, um, you know, really serious pressure from up above to um, not be so passionate about what they're doing, maybe be more calloused about it, maybe do less, you know, you're doing too much, blah, blah, blah. And they will go, you know, above and beyond their job to be doing some of this stuff on their own free time. And it's just, you know, amazing to see people stepping up like that and being so passionate. And it's unfortunate that they don't get recognition for, for that passion. Right. Like you said, so many people, uh, or actually, I'll, uh, I'll paraphrase someone that I talked to yesterday in a TCP interview. Um, you know, the conversation, the, uh, the, the uh, conservation, not conversation, words are hard. <laughs> the conservation movement attending to attract people, like you just said, that will go 
above and beyond and work on their own time for free rather than people looking to pad their bank accounts. And the result of that is that sometimes there is just this expectation that like, that's how the work needs to be done. And, you know, to actually change that climate where, you know, and if folks don't want recognition for their work, that's totally okay. But to really start shining a spotlight on some of that beyond just this abstract sense of, oh, it's really great that so many people are doing that work, but to really know like, yeah, you know, that person is in the figurative or maybe literal trench somewhere out in the desert working on this stuff. You know, you, you helped to open my eyes a little bit to that the first time we talked. I'm definitely appreciative of that. So I'm wondering, you know, we're coming up on the, uh, I believe the 45 minute mark here, you know, thinking ahead to the next few months before the heat comes back and summer and all that good stuff. Um, what's on your radar going forward? What, uh, what projects might be coming down the pipeline for you? Well, the Oregon pipe project is coming to crunch time. Um, lot, uh, Kato Bikito just about dried up this summer wow. in the heat of the summer. Uh, we're not expecting hardly anything and uh, precipitation wise over the winter, it's going to be a dry winter. It's expected to be a dry winter. Hmm. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, that's going to become, uh, turn into an emergency situation really fast. And uh, we need to stay ahead of that. I don't know how much I'll be involved in that, but um, I, I will definitely be making myself available to help with it. Um, and uh, we're also seeing a lot of problems in Sienega Creek as far as the drawing that's happening there. Uh, we've documented large reaches, a uh, half mile reach of perennial stream that dried up this last summer that we've never seen dry before. Uh, there were dead fish and dead turtles all over the place. Um, we're struggling as, you know, with the land managers and wildlife managers, how to best approach these drought mortalities, you know, at what point can you go in and rescue fish to be able to use those for aug augmenting other populations or, or what, or do you just let uh, nature take its course in those situations as long as there's still um, habitat available somewhere upstream or something, it's, it's less of an emergency, but it still seems to be some opportunities there that we could take advantage of as, um, as things dry up in those reaches. Uh, so those are probably the top things on my mind is it's just drought, 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 because I just don't see any end to this yet. And you know, really hoping that we get a good monsoon kicking in, I really was hoping we would get some winter rain and snow because that's what really recharges everything mm -hmm. so with that lacking i just think it's going to be a lot of drought emergencies this summer and probably a lot of fire emergencies as well right i uh i got here in mid-july right and i keep hearing rain 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 i've been told it rains here <laughs> I've been told that we have monsoons here. I was told that sometimes it even rains in the fall after the monsoon. Uh, I haven't seen any of that yet. And so I have like a pseudo bet running with myself where I'm like, okay, I'm not allowed to leave until this happens. So yes. I might be here a while, which, you know, is totally fine. Sign me up. Um, you, you mentioned to, fire. You have to be here for it. You have to be for it. Right. Because, That's, you know, just the same way, like side note, the same way that my geospatial understanding of Tucson is just so bad. It's so bad, Dennis. Like I, you know, I've been working remotely for six months. It's like, I haven't really had an opportunity to experience the place. People ask me like, how do you like Tucson? And I'm like, I'm going to need to be here a while before I can answer that. I mean, of course I like it here, but like, what have I actually gotten to experience on the ground? Not much. Um, and so there's all these things, uh, cultural institutions, you know, uh, climate events I keep hearing about. And I'm like, that sounds really cool. Just waiting for the day. Um, I uh, just, a, you know, something I briefly want to touch on because you mentioned it, the effect of fire on a lot of these 
aquatic habitats. Um, we haven't really talked about wildfire up until this point, but if you could just give us a quick sort of like thumbnail sketch on that. Um, yeah. Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah. So, um, boy, you know, um, start out, I'll start out with the current um, conservation situation dealing with fire is, uh, you know, when the Catalina mountains burned badly this last summer, those are the mountains just to the uh, north of Tucson. Um, there were emergency procedures put in place with a bunch of us biologists to try and um, get it crew together to go into some of the wet canyons that could potentially be damaged by um, the ash flows that often happen when the rains arrive after a big burn like that. Um, we've got a couple of canyons on the north side of the Catalinas that um, have fish and frogs in them. And there was also um, been a lot of effort to reintroduce the Gila Chub and Gila Topmano into Spino Canyon. Gila Chub, what a name. And, uh, <laughs> and Sabino Canyon was at risk as well. And so um, Game and Fish and Fish and Wildlife Service and Apima County and others, Forest Service, all were rallying together to try and um, salvage fish and frogs out of these canyons just in case they get hit by the ash flows, which we were sure were coming, and be able to retain some of those animals in off-site off -site habitats where um, they would be safe to be able to um, put back after the habitat becomes um, suitable for them again, uh, to get them back into these habitats. Um, those operations happened and were successful at getting the animals into backup habitats, or you could call it a refugium or a refuge habitat. Um, fortunately for the mountain, the rains did not come hard. We all complained about not getting monsoons, but um, heavy rains after catastrophic fire can do a lot of damage with ash flows and flooding and uh, erosion. That didn't happen. Maybe things have been able to stabilize really well. And uh, by the time the rains do come, the mountain will be in a much better condition and um, more stable to where those streams may have been saved by the drought. <laughs> it's right. kind of huh. a hard way to <laughs> try and <laughs> picture it that the drought saved the streams. Where right, we just spent a whole podcast talking about how bad drought, <laughs> drought is. And so that, with that, I will rewind. About, uh, 20 or 30 years ago when we had a catastrophic fire in the Rincon Mountains to, mm. the, um, to the east of town. And there the rains did come and put out the fire and created a lot of erosion. Uh, they filled in all of the water holes in the creeks and streams. The way our mountain streams work here in Arizona is there's usually a system of um, what we call tanahas, which are these rock basins, kind of like the, the rock pools that you see up in Sabino Canyon. A lot of people have been up into there or Romero pools up at Catalina State Park. There are these pools that are just scoured out of years and years or centuries of uh, gravel and sand being flooded down these over waterfalls and creating these little pools. During the dry season, the stream will stop flowing, but you'll still have those pools of water stair-stepping right. all the way up these steep canyons. And those pools of water support fish and frogs and all kinds of life. Uh, after an erosive event happens, after a wildfire, a lot of sediment moves into that system and completely displaces the water with sand. Now you've got waterfalls of sand and no water. And um, 
that leaves nothing for the fish and the frogs. And we did not know how long it would take for those streams to ever come back. So we rescued frogs out of there, built ponds in people's backyard. People volunteered their backyard, the neighbor of the park on the east side, Suara National Park. Um, and we created habitats there to try and keep these species alive. And we wanted to just let the system fix itself over time. Surely this mountain will stabilize and uh, those, um, those pools will clear back out. Flash floods will come through, scour those pools back out, back down to the bare rock the way they used to be. And we'll have um, a bunch of really nice habitat again. Uh, well, the years just have gone on and on and on. And it's just barely now starting to look like um, frog habitat again. And hmm. uh, we've done, uh, the Park Service has done one introduction into one of the canyons that's been successful so far where the frogs have taken uh, back to their former habitat. And so we're looking at, you know, you know, maybe this is, we did the right thing and we um, saved those frogs and can now start getting them back onto the, into the habitat. But that's what fire does, you know, for aquatic systems. Uh, the water is protected from the heat of the fire and everything like that. Water doesn't burn, but the after effects, the erosion, and um, the ash flows. Man, when Sabido Creek um, got its ash flows a few years ago from one of the big fires up there, uh, it just was this toxic soup of black ash that was wow. just hot to touch in the heat of the sun, you know, because it just turned that crystal clear water into this black, thick mud. And that's what can happen. You know, originally these aquatic systems were all connected and there were no people around to do what we're doing. It didn't matter because as soon as the habitat became available, there were plenty of fish and frogs down here in the valley and the Santa Cruz River and the Rito River and the Pantano Creek and uh, Tanca Verde Creek that they just spread back up into those canyons eventually when they become available. Now we've lost all of this stuff down here in the basin. It's all turned into houses and been desiccated and dried up and pumped down. So there's no more connectivity and that's where we kind of have to uh, play God that way and try and redo that connectivity manually and keep right. these things be the life support that keeps these things going. Right. That's actually, uh, it's kind of a perfect segue to end this on, you know, I'm curious what with all these challenges, both behind you and in front of you, you know, this is not easy work from the sound of it. Um, what gives you hope? What keeps you going? Um, you know, I, I like to think that, um, I like to think that a lot of us do this so we can sleep at night. You know, hmm. it's one thing to put your blinders on and pretend it's not happening, but if you can't ignore it and you know it's happening, uh, it's just as wrong to not do anything about it as it's just as it is wrong to see somebody trying to steal a purse from an old lady on the sidewalk and not do anything about it. You know, it's like it's it's. Um, a moral obligation. And I think that's what keeps me going. Uh, what gives me hope is that, um, you know, more and more people are becoming aware of some of these things and stepping up. There's a change, a generational shift um, where a lot of people are starting to seek the outdoors or starting to realize that they've missed something and a lot of emphasis is being put into trying to get young people reinterested in the outdoors and try to um, garner awareness for some of this stuff. This year with COVID, we've seen so many people 
outdoor recreating because it's one of the few safe things you can do outside of your house. Right. And I, so I think a lot of people are rediscovering nature. I think a lot of people are rediscovering camping and hiking. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of ways to be helpful. And these things all change from year to year, generation to generation. So it's, it's all pretty much boils down to a people problem in my mind, um, all of the things we deal with. And I hope that uh, people will be able to be the solution. Yes. Well said. Any other final thoughts for the record before we close up shop? Um, no, I just want to thank you for uh, having your show and um, being able to, again, you know, get this out to the public and make people more aware of these things. And this is exactly what it takes. Um, most of my graphic design um, work now involves uh, public outreach as well. Um, I do a lot of illustration and um, uh, other graphic design that involves getting science and nature into explaining it and making it palatable for people to understand and digest and, uh, and care about. And I think that's what you're doing as well. Very cool. Thank you. With that, that concludes today's chat about climate poverty and service here in Tucson, Arizona. You can find new episodes of the Tucson Climate Chats podcast on Fridays at anchor.fm forward slash Tucson dash climate dash chats or on Spotify and most other major audio distributors. Like the show, comments, questions, compliments, concerns, smart remarks. Feel free to email me, Nick, as always at nspinelli, that's S-P-I-N-E-L-L-I at ArizonaServe.org. And gratitude to each and every one of you for the opportunity to do this work as well as support yours.